As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Let's start the conversation with Laurie Cavasina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, the headline in your most recent piece, due for a pause. Due for a pause. What does that mean, Laurie? So, look, I don't want anyone to come away from this thinking that Laurie Calvacina is turning super bearish, but we don't like where we are, you know, sort of in the intermediate term. And we're seeing a couple things. Uh, we went, you know, every every few months, right, we make sure we publish an update on our targets, our price target for the S&P. A couple of my cross-asset models are deteriorating. They were improving back in May. So, in other words, the, the appeal of stocks relative to bonds is worsening. Um, and also, our sentiment model is really bothering us. Um, it's really back at one standard deviation above its long-term average. If you look at net bullishness on the AAII survey, typically you see, you know, kind of mid to low single-digit gains in the S&P over the next 12 months when that happens. And this just feels to me like a market, while I think everything has been deserved in terms of what we've done so far, it just feels like this market needs to stop, pause, have a little moment of digestion and catch its breath. Okay. I like the analysis and the idea is you got to pull back to get the, you know, get the fear click in and, you know, you know, we've all done this and studied it. Can you just stay flat out? We're through with the bear market. I, I never really subscribed to that thesis to begin with, with Tom. I, you know, I never liked this whole concept of we're in a bear market, therefore we have to do X. We're having a bear market rally. It's false. Don't believe it. Um, I just was never in that camp. I think we priced in a recession last October, and we've basically been having a plain old-fashioned recovery trade. And now we're yeah. seeing some of the things that were really telling us to hold your nose and buy at the beginning of the year. I go back to that right. sentiment model. is telling us we need to calm down for a little while. And ben Laidler over at eToro writes up on the Lord Calvacino world this morning. He talks about value, talks about what's out there away from seven chosen stocks as well. Color or shape the value of mid caps right now? So it's interesting, Tom. We, you know, we do a lot of work on small caps, but we've also been getting increasing questions on mid caps. In our big chart deck we published this morning, we actually added a mid cap section for the first time in quite some time. And it's a pretty similar story to small caps. Um, they tend to benefit when you're in recovery mode. Um, they've started to do that a little bit, but not as much as we would have expected. Um, the valuation story is pretty reasonable. If you look at the multiples versus history, the mid caps look very cheap versus the versus the mega caps right now, and 
if we get a recovery in 2024, there should be more upside there. So we do feel like similar to how we feel in small caps, we feel like that mid cap part of the market where large cap managers actually can gravitate down to, we feel like that's right for a catch up trade as well. Laurie, we're going to be speaking with Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley later in this morning, which I'm really looking forward to. He has a note out talking about the fiscal backdrop and how much of a variable that is with respect to stock performance. How does that factor into what you're expecting going into an election year, which tends to be tumultuous? So, you know, when we were going through this targeting, you know, kind of refresh last week, so we looked at one of our political tests, which is just a, a simple election cycle test. And one of the things we noticed is that the current year that we're in tends to be one of the strongest for the markets. So it's been, you know, kind of one of the, the you know, more positive signals. And next year, the election year itself or a presidential year tends to be one of the weaker years in the election cycle. And I just juxtapose that with what I've been hearing from investors. They keep asking me, well, when are people going to start paying attention to the election? There are a lot of questions that are starting to come up. And my response to the investors I'm speaking with is, I think it's starting now because you're all asking me about it. And it seems to me that this is emerging as just a very, very big source of uncertainty as to what is going to happen with the election next year, both in terms of the presidential race and Congress. So then what is the election cycle playbook? What is how you play this particular type of uncertainty versus the uncertainty of where we are in the inflation cycle and the Federal Reserve? Well, I think there's a lot of you know questions that are starting to emerge about the outcome. One of the things I'm hearing from investors are, you know, they're trying to probe whether or not there are alternatives to Biden. I'm hearing a lot of questions about that from international investors in particular. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of head scratching over what's going on, going on on the Republican side, especially with DeSantis. Um, there was some excitement there early on. Now that seems to have faded a bit. But I think this is just really an air pocket of uncertainty that's starting to emerge. We're not even really having detailed conversation with clients yet about what either side would want to do policy measures. It's really, you know, I think just frankly, this overhang of not knowing what the outcome is going to be that could push investors to the sidelines for a little bit. And I think that's going to weigh heavily once we get to the fourth quarter, when everyone starts putting their outlook discussions out, right? They're going to be talking about Fed cuts in the back half of the year, but they're also going to be talking about the election. So we, we kind of see those yeah. things starting to come into the conversation. We have more outlooks to come. Oh, joy. Well, some of those outlooks are being revised pretty quickly. The recession calls on Wall Street dropping like flies, TK. Mike Gapen yeah. in the last week. Mike Faroli, JP Morgan going into the weekend, dropping his recession call too. Can you see Calvacina on the deck with a fam working on her outlook gin and tonic on the table next to her? In the summer? Getting through the August. The mid-year outlook? The summer, the mid-year. The mid-year no, outlook. No, the mid-year. The mid-mid-year. The summer adjustment. The summertime outlook. <laughs> Laurie, can I finish on a single name? Forgive me. What does it say about the market when the biggest weighting on the S&P 500 has had three quarters of declining sales, trades at 30 times earnings and is up 40 percent year to date? What can you take away from that? What's the signal you take from that? One of the reasons why I think people have been gravitating towards these mega cap growth stocks is that we are in recovery mode and the shape of that recovery doesn't look so fantastic. I think the price we're going to pay for a short, shallower, skipped recession is subpar economic growth for a few years. And if you look at consensus forecasts as tracked by Bloomberg, um, basically for next year and 2025, GDP is expected to be in kind of that zero to two percent range. Well, guess what? Growth stocks typically do well when economic growth is scarce. And I think that's one of the reasons why people have been just plowing so much money into these big mega cap names because despite some of the near-term challenges they have faith that the longer-term growth opportunities are still there. Laurie, thank you. Laurie Cavasina of RBC on some of the tech stories so far this year.
our conversation of the day now on the equity markets, the stock market with Michael Wilson. Mike Wilson, CIO and Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, you go over and you study Ellen Zettner's notes and you look at fiscal tightening. Describe fiscal tightening. Describe what it means for the Standard & Poor's 500. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, yeah, look, I think, you know, I don't think we've hit a wall completely here, but I think it's fair to say that the fiscal impulse that we've experienced over the last 12 months uh, caught a lot of people off guard, uh, including ourselves, and it has really kept the economy going in a way that most people were not projecting. Um, and that has led people to believe that this can continue. Now, there's been a confluence of events. Uh, for why interest rates have risen. I wouldn't blame it all on the downgrade last week. In fact, probably none of it is. I think the bigger issue is just simple supply and demand. We have an enormous amount of supply to fund all this spending at a time when perhaps some of the natural buyers are not there anymore. For example, the banking system, pretty full up on treasuries. And of course, the, the Bank of Japan's changed last week. So, you know, I think the interest rate move, look, first of all, stocks were already expensive on their own cost of capital going up. Now, think about it this way. The, the the recovery we've had since COVID has been funded by the government for the most part, okay? And now their cost of capital is going up. So that has to have some sort of a, you know, some sort of a knock-on effect to mm-hmm. valuation. If we were trading at a lower valuation here, I wouldn't be so concerned about the growth outlook. But, you know, given our growth, our growth outlook, which is right. more pessimistic than most, that's where the that's where you have a real issue. And, and look, you can still make money picking stocks. It's just a harder game. You well, know? That, and I think that's what most clients are, yeah, are having th- trouble th- with. That's where I wanted to go, Mike Wilson. I think this is so important. If we get a fiscal tightening and whatever your matrix is of equity dynamics folded into economics, if you will, does it lead to a more aggregate summed index or is it where sectors and selected stocks, including the glorious eight tech stocks, they're partitioned out. They do great while everybody else struggles. Well, that's been the bet that has worked so far this year. But now even those stocks seem to be tiring. I mean, this you know this earnings season has been a sell the news, uh, so to speak, if you want to call it that. Even though even with companies that put up good numbers, it's been kind of a faded because the market anticipated you know kind of this stronger economic bounce this year, and perhaps earnings not being as bad as people were, were thinking, <clears throat> and then we kind of muddle through. So now the, the question, I think for the, you know, for this rally to continue, it has to happen internally, right? We have to have breath improve. We need to see a rotation into some of these lagging areas. We've started to see that. We're not convinced yet that the breath, the way we measure breath is not convincing to us yet, but we're open-minded to it. Um, but that's, that would be the next stage of the bull market. If you want to be bullish, you have to be buying laggards here. You can't just keep chasing you know, the Magnificent Seven and forget about everything else. That's not a healthy outcome. What about what Cameron Dawson was talking about, especially at a time of rising yields, in part due to the fiscal backdrop, the supply and demand that you're talking about? It turns out that stocks become not a Tina trade, but a little bit. There isn't another alternative that's much better. Revenues are going up in an inflationary environment. Yes, multiples look high, but what are you going to do? Go into bonds that are uh, losing value at this point? I mean, how much do you buy that type of argument? Well, we don't buy it because our view is that inflation is coming down much more rapidly from, you know, at the company level than it is in the government statistics. And this is where I think it could get really interesting in the se- or tricky in the second half of the year, which is we have government statistics reporting inflation still at three to four percent. So the Fed is, you know, going to continue to hold or maybe even raise more. 
Yet what companies are actually seeing in their businesses, Lisa, are, you know, deterioration. Like we have negative price now in many of the good sectors, right? The PPI finished goods is in negative territory, export pricing, import pricing. So it's the opposite of 2021. Think of it this way. In the back half of 2021, companies were getting 15, 20% price, yet the Fed was on hold because they were saying, well, we're not sure yet this is going to be permanent. Of course, they were late to the party. And companies got to over-earn at a very low interest rate. Now you have the exact opposite. Interest rates are being held very, very high at a time when company earnings for the majority, not all, but the majority of companies is deteriorating. I mean, sales growth is not increasing, especially going down. And we have 0% sales growth in the second quarter. And if we're right on this pricing dynamic, then that's going to be something that catches folks off guard. That's why we're not going into small caps and the lower quality parts of the market. If you're going to go to the laggers, make sure you go to laggers that have good balance sheets and good margin structures. Okay, so it's still a quality play, just you know, the different, just different quality names. If inflation is going to come down and come down rapidly, then why wouldn't that really favor a Fed rate cut that could turbocharge some of the trade into big tech? Well, because I think, I mean, the Fed. No, I mean they—they they know they made a mistake, and they said it, right? They—they they know they were a little bit late on the transitory call. Okay, fine. There—I mean, why would they cut rates if we have full employment? There's—I mean, there's no reason to do that. Unemployment is three and a half percent. You have inflation still north of three percent, so now they were near their goal. Just hold. I mean, I'm not—I'm not making the case they need to raise rates here. I, I don't think they need to do that. But I think they're going to want to see the whites of the eyes to make sure that things are down. I, I'm not, I don't work at the Fed. I don't know what they're going to do. But my, my prudence would say that's what they should do. They should, they should pause and see what happens and not try to anticipate too much here because that got them in trouble last time. Mike, can we just finish with your framework, post-pandemic framework? We'll remember it well. It was hot and short. The cycle would be hot, but ultimately it would be shorter than what we'd seen previously. Now, Mike, it certainly was hot. And you've got the equity market call coming out of the pandemic dead on. But, Mike, does anything lead you to question the short part? Because I think that's where the conversation is quickly shifting, as you know, over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound ironic. OK, so uh, as you remember, back in January, I was concerned that everybody was too bearish, uh, including ourselves. And that proved to be the right, you know, I should have gone with my instinct. And now, though... I think the, the fact that everybody is saying that the recession risk is eliminated for the most part, including the Fed itself, right? They had, they had called for recession back in March, at least the staff did, and they backed off that too. Like, I, I don't know if we need a full-blown recession, but I'm pretty convinced that growth is still slowing. Like We're in a down cycle. Now, whether that leads to a full-blown labor cycle or not remains to be seen. I think most people have pushed out the recession call to 24. I don't think they said it's eliminated. So is it, it maybe a four-year cycle as opposed to a three-year cycle? That's very plausible. I still really, I really like our boom-bust, you know, short-cycle thesis based on the 40s because I see the data really supporting that, John. And part of our note over the weekend, and you can appreciate this because you've followed it the whole time, is that we, you know, we got, you know, we kind of missed this fiscal impulse, right? That was a big miss on our part. We thought the fiscal impulse would come at the time that they really needed it. And think about it this way: they're doing they're doing eight percent budget deficit spending when you have three and a half percent unemployment. I mean that's really unprecedented. So what's going to happen if we do get a slowdown next year? And I, I just think that I just think this boom bust thesis is still correct. And maybe the market's looking through it to the to the other side. I, look, that's that's a risky proposition given where valuations are. It was a, it was a great idea to buy stocks last fall. We traded it. We didn't stick with it long enough. Okay. 
But I think at this stage, you need to be very selective, very selective for some sort of retracement, at least back to the 200-day moving average. Mike, wonderful to get your thoughts and update on the team over at Morgan Stanley on Equity Research. Mike Wilson there of Morgan Stanley. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Apple had a solid two-standard deviation move to a lower, weaker price, unlike some of the success stories that were out there last week. But with that, you know, it's not like it's a technical breakdown. I thought Sarah Hunt, uh, when we spoke to her, was on fire. I thought she was just great. Dan Ives of Wedbush still bullish, Tom, still bullish on the stock, <clears throat> despite a weak earnings report raising their price target from 220 to 230 iPhones and services will accelerate in the June quarter with the softness all, I, all, all Mac and iPad driven. When excluding FX and focusing on the hearts and lungs, iPhones and services, this was a strong performance and guidance in our view. And we would be strong buyers on any weakness. Well, Tom, I can tell you in the last week, we've had some of that. We've had some weakness. Doing some important research now. Joining us from Hirschgebu Leeds, Billion 25, 1017 PS Amsterdam, where Apple says, Vilgeventen wat voor Joe de Bestkuz East is Daniel Ives. He is in Amsterdam and joins us by phone uh, this morning. Dan Ives, does Apple sell in Amsterdam like it sells in New York, like it sells in Chicago, like it sells in L.A.? They do. I mean, I can tell you by you know, what I've seen here and what Apple has always had the presence, not just in Amsterdam, but across Europe. And I think if you look at the quarter, like, like Farrah was talking, I focus on iPhones services, China, gross margin. That was all better than expected. Mac and iPad, we right. that view as noise. Dan, in Europe, they want to go after Google. They want to go after Microsoft, indeed, the evil Apple as well. Let's say that they are, in a sense, anti-technology. That's the political elites. Are the people of Amsterdam, the people of Berlin, etc., Oslo, are they anti-Apple, anti-Google, anti-technology? They're not anti-Apple. They're actually pro-Apple, and I think investors are pro-Apple. I think when it comes to the EU and what we see from a regulatory, that's a whole other situation. But I think it just comes down to fines for big tech companies like Apple, Google. At this point, that's like drinking a cup of coffee. And I think the investors are going to continue to be that as background noise even though the heat gets hotter in the kitchen. Well, let's talk about the heart and lungs of it, Dan. I think over the weekend, someone in Barron's said something like iPhone zero, zero growth. Now, Dan, we've had three quarters of that. The stock's trading at a multiple of 30, 30 times earnings, and it's up 40% year to date. What's the argument still that this is a growth stock? 
Well, first you have 400 bips of FX headwind. So, so the zero percent, when I view it from a cons currency perspective, where they're growing, and then you look at now what goes into the iPhone 15, which I view as basically a mini super cycle, you have 25% of the install base that is not upgraded in four plus years. So even though they've gone through what I'll call conservative growth, that's going to now start to be high single digit, potentially double digit. And then at the same time, services, that is the key to the re-rating. Now you're starting to see double digit services growth. And I think that's the perfect storm positive that I see going 2024. Part of your bullish thesis for a long time has been this base that haven't upgraded their phone. Dan, at some point, does that base get big enough that actually that's no longer a bullish thesis, that they've just been sitting there and they're not upgrading year after year after year after year? Do you start to change your mind about why they're not upgrading? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the other thing is they're adding iPhone. I mean, they've added over 150 million iPhone users just if you look at the last 18 months. So I think what's starting to happen now, that's 1.2 billion which at one point was below a billion before COVID. So I think what's starting to happen is they're gaining more and more share in China. They've gained 300 bips of market share in China in the last two years, despite the geopolitical. And I think it just comes down to, you'll see the bears come out on Apple, especially over the last week. But I believe this is just a pause. Selling Apple into this iPhone 15 cycle, in my opinion, it's leaving the Super Bowl at halftime. I love I love iPhone Zero. I gotta say, John, I'm still thinking about that. Are you gonna get an iPhone 15? No, I'm gonna get an iPhone Zero. Zero growth. I mean, that's sort of what uh, Barrett right. was going after them uh, for. There is a question, though, Dan, of what you do with the multiples, with the valuation of a stock at a time, where some people are speculating that there is not a lot of growth in the smartphone industry. Nothing really wrong against Apple. Just in general, there has been this real slowdown. At what point can you continue to be bullish on Apple shares, if you continue to see longer-term rates creep higher, if you continue to see the valuation proposition challenged on a more macro front? Sure. And, and excellent point. I'd, I'd also say it's something Keen and I have talked about a lot, the, the gross margin store. I mean, the highest gross margins ever because of what, what we've seen on the M2 chip and the innovation, the margin there, and that's going to continue to go higher. That's just higher from, from a margin perspective. And I believe services is the key. Services, in my opinion, is worth $1.3 to $1.4 trillion alone. And even though we have this from a, from a tech multiple headwind perspective, I think it starts to abate. And I think service is ultimately the key to how this thing re-rates higher along with an iPhone 15 cycle that I believe is going to be massive. This really speaks, Dan, to this question around uh, what the content will be that really feeds some of their services. This idea that Lionel Messi was name-checked on the call uh, as one of the reasons why they've seen a real increase in subscribers. So what are they going to use with that cash pile to acquire more content? Are they going to buy, you know, I don't know, a London football team? Well, I, I mean, I think, and I think you've seen it a bit in terms of some of the things that they've talked about. They're going to continue expand Apple TV. I think from a streaming perspective, they're going to go after more rights, obviously, Pac-12 story that we saw over the last week. But I think the big thing is going to be AI. I mean, I think ultimately they're going to further build out this AI, what I believe is going to be an AI app store. 
And that is going to be the next wave of growth as they further monetize an unparalleled install base in Cupertino. Messi making the MLS look like child's play. You see that over the weekend, honestly. It's like things, I saw someone tweet something like it's like easy mode. It's like cheat mode for Messi in the MLS. Just different <laughs> standard. Dan, thank you, sir. Dan Ives of Wedbush, still constructive, optimistic on this name ahead of the launch time. Lisa, on the American economy, uh, I, I think it's real simple to say the biggest part of the algebraic function is the consumer and our guest is definitive on consumer dynamics. Which is really the key mystery point that people are trying to uh, hook into. So there is no one better to speak to than Michelle Meyer, who has grown up under Ethan Harris at Bank of America during the whole mortgage situation currently. Uh, Chief Economist for North America at the MasterCard Economics Institute. Michelle, always wonderful to see you. I want to start there. Are people overestimating or underestimating the strength of the consumer? Well, I think that was the story for the past year and a half has been this underestimation of the U.S. consumer. Um, the consumer has been able to spend. The consumer has been willing to spend. Um, the consumer has been eager to engage in the economy and come back after this pandemic. Um, and you think about why. It's actually pretty simple. There's been a lot of purchasing power, whether it's the strength in the labor market that's continued. We saw that in Friday's jobs report. Or it's been the health of the balance sheet, um, which was, you know, really really um, improved in the pandemic period as households paid down their debt. Um, and even now in a higher rate environment, debt service ratios are still um, fairly reasonable and kind of back to where we were prior to the pandemic. That said, higher. that said, you have seen a decrease in income relative to spending. In other words, people are spending more than they're bringing in at this point. And a lot of it has to do with credit cards. They're increasing the amount of revolving debt, credit card debt uh, that, they're, that they have outstanding. How long can that continue? Well, the way I think about it is throughout last year when we had high inflationary environment, it was certainly the case that consumers were augmenting their income with other sources, whether that's drawing down savings or taking on more debt. Um, and that was to help support the inflationary environment. But now inflation is a lot more subdued. So if you look at real wages or real purchasing power, it has certainly turned positive where consumers now have a lot of support from, simply from the labor market and they don't necessarily need that same buffer that they needed when they were facing such high inflation. No doubt it just puts out on, is it Twitter? Are we call it something different now? Is it X, the, the X, platform X, formerly known as Twitter? The platform formerly known as Twitter. And he does what I like to do, which is take three months data, 90 days of data and annualize it. And the real GDP statistic, the cons American consumer statistic looking three months back is extraordinary. It's a 5.3% uh, number. That's just absolutely stunning as well. Does your consumer data at MasterCard validate a resiliency to that ginormous 5.3% trend? Yeah, you guys are throwing out all my old colleagues, Ethan, Neil, it's a part here. Um, Ethan but, who? <laughs> Ethan. <laughs> we'll get to that. Tell me, tell me about <laughs> so real GDP consumer. now. Has it got some persistency? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think it does. I mean, if you look at the first half of the year and you think about GDP growth and consumer spending, even measures of business investment, um, it's been above expectations, which is partly, I think, because expectations were set too low, but also showed a consumer that does have this persistence. Look, the consumer is shifting. The economy is shifting. We're entering a different stage in this business cycle. Um, it is a 
stage where there's more of a moderation, there's more of a normalization. There's still a debate of what trend growth is or potential growth is coming out of the pandemic. But it's not an economy that is moving towards you know a, a proper deceleration, which was the fear of a lot of people earlier in the year. So given that, Mm-hmm. Do you stand on the side of soft landing, or do you side is on the side? Uh, do you stand on the side where we're underestimating how much strength there is and how much potential for inflation to keep going at really elevated levels? So we've been in the soft landing camp, and I, I still hold to that view. And I think when you think about soft, there's going to be bumps. <laughs> and for certain sectors, it could look bumpier than others, right? When you think about the manufacturing sector, that's struggling a bit more. When you think about housing, which was in a big adjustment throughout this year, and this year is actually reaccelerating, which is somewhat problematic for the Federal Reserve. Um, but yeah, it does seem like this is an economy that's readjusting, and it's doing so in a way that has been a lot less... Um, problematic than I think people feared. We were talking earlier with Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley and talking about the fiscal impulse. And that was been one of the drivers of the strength that we've seen, the resilience, this belief in a soft landing that we have currently in the market. How much do you lean into that, that what we're seeing, the strength of the consumer, the strength of the economy has been driven entirely by fiscal spending that has been delayed and has really come into effect after the pandemic was over? Well, look, there was an extraordinary amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus that boosted the economy. So when I think about the stages, you had a pandemic that created an abrupt shutdown of the economy, a reopening stage that was hot. The economy was red hot because you had this pent-up demand, fiscal stimulus, monetary policy. Um, and now we're in a stage where the economy is creating more of a, of a normalization, a rebalancing, an adjustment, pick your phrase. Um, but... I, Whichever way you cut it, um, I think there is still some support from the stimulus that we had um, enjoyed. And that could be from the consumer with a household balance sheet that's been improved, or it could even be part of the manufacturing sector when you think about the infrastructure spending that's going through the economy now, which is quite important. Without giving away the, the crown jewels, you at MasterCard have incredible consumer data. Is there resistance to 29 or 30%? credit card interest rates? Do people go, no, I don't want to do that? Well, you know, we're every we're kind of the economy in general is figuring out what that level of interest rates is that is in a, a challenge, right? So when you think about the Fed bringing interest rates close to 6% on the policy rate, beginning of this cycle, there was a view that was impossible. You can't have a 6% policy rate and the economy will break under that environment. And it hasn't because you also have to think about it in terms of real rates, not just that nominal rate. Um, So that I think is what the Fed is trying to engineer and figure out is what is the level of interest rates that's the appropriate level that doesn't cause the economy to roll over, but does cause the economy to slow down because that moderation is important. It's part Uh, of getting Well, very quickly here, and you mentioned Neil Dutt earlier and all You did at Bank of America with Dr. Harris. Ethan Harris is retiring. And I would suggest what Ethan Harris gave you, which is a sense of look at history. And the answer is where we are now is where we were. I'll let you decide. Where are we? Early 2000s? Is this a 90s analog that we're in right now? I mean, um, so, yes, Ethan, time series, that's his thing. Yeah. That's been huge. <laughs> I'd still bring that back. Um, in terms of the comparison, 
you know, it'd be great if it was a 90s comparison because that was a cycle that enjoyed productivity gains. It was a cycle that had a lot longer duration than anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fed was able to hike rates and then gradually normalize or reduce interest rates without creating a huge business cycle. Um, so there's a lot of parallels to that. Um, but it's hard to just take this business cycle and fit it into a box or say this is exactly like this right. past cycle because it was a pandemic with extraordinary stimulus. So, so much has changed. Think about the structure of the labor market and how much that has changed with a more hybrid mm-hmm. workforce. Think about how much we've embraced technology. There's a lot that is well, different about this economy. It'd be great to get you, Neil Dudd, and Ethan Harris on the desk at the same time, although folks are not in speaking terms. No, so no, no. no, no. Michelle Meyer with us <laughs> with MasterCard Economics Institute. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, we are going to gin up a story here on Goldman Sachs. Yes, it's about Jeff Curry leaving, head of commodities, a former professor at Chicago, microeconomics. But it's far, far more on that. And I want to go to a story from six days ago. Goldman Sachs family office partner, Apoku, to leave, because maybe that's a bigger story. Srinata Rajan, for all of Global uh, Wall Street, is expert on this, and he joins us and reports this morning. I'm sorry, there's something going on here. Don't give me your, well, we don't know, it's just speculation, baloney. They're walking out the door, aren't they? So let's start with some numbers. Uh, This Jeff Curry would perhaps be the sixth partner to leave in the last couple of weeks. In late July, early August, that's not the usual time when you see a lot of partners leave. To me, it still feels like Jeff Curry's departure might be slightly different from some of the other recent departures we've seen, the likes of Lisa Poku, the likes of Julian Salisbury. These were some of the people who were on the up and up. For them to leave was a surprising bit. We have to remember, and over the years, this is what Goldman has told us, to maintain their pool of 400 or so partners, every couple of years, some 35, uh, some 70 partners leave. More recently, a new spokesman has said that's about 80 partners every two years. So there's clearly been some inflation in that figure. But the fact of the matter is, there's always a bunch of, to put it politely, undesirables in the Goldman partner ranks. They don't get fired, but they're certainly shown the door. They walk out, they're retired, they leave. But what has been surprising in the last year, in the last 18 months, in fact, in the last couple of years, is the type of partners leaving, people who were picked for better roles, people who were picked for much greater things at Goldman, deciding to walk out the door because of some of the issues that firm is facing. In the delicacies of this, and Sri's going to be reporting on this for Global Wall Street through all of today and into tomorrow, what's the why? What is the set of whys, if you will, this is going on? That's not going on at Morgan Stanley, right? It, it, we certainly haven't seen anything of this space at any other firm. It, it's, it's fair to say that 
There is a bit of tumult in the higher ranks of government. There's, there's no denying that. He, he, are, are, are the rank and file big fans of the CEO, David Solomon? You, even David Solomon would probably tell you that's not true. The reasons for that are perhaps debatable. You have come off a great high of 2021 only to see profits and earnings just completely get decimated in 22, fall further in 23. That could be a factor. There are others who would say there are strategic missteps and there are others who say that this CEO just does not inspire faith. Is there a certain area of the company where a lot of the departures are focused, a certain type of asset class, a certain type of uh, practice? I think we should acknowledge it front on that we don't have full visibility into all the partner departures. What we do see is some of the prominent names who leave. That is why people inside the firm, people outside the firm talk to us about those departures because these are names that are recognizable. It's hard to draw statistics from that. We do know that their banking and trading business has been doing quite well. That has always been the crown jewel of Goldman Sachs. That has done really well. Unfortunately for David Solomon, he can't take a lot of credit for that because that was already doing really well. The kind of areas he tried to drive the firm into, consumer banking, turned out to be a major flop. And that unfortunately sits on his head. If you take a step back, it seems as though there are a number of sort of big seismic changes in the banking industry. There's Credit Suisse that has gone gone away, uh, UBS uh, acquiring, not gone away yet, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, you have a real kind of shifting in the baton with respect to Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, or at least people are thinking about that. Where does Goldman Sachs fit into this, especially at a time of very much a talent war? I'm so glad you mentioned that because Goldman criminology aside, forget the palace intrigue at Goldman Sachs, the changes, the structural changes we've seen in the global banking industry, you know, what has happened with the big European banks has meant that if you are a large US bank, if you've been doing well and you have a strong presence in what you're doing, you will gain market share. The competitive moat around the likes of JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs continues to grow, continues to become deeper. So they have benefited from that. Given that, where has Goldman Sachs not benefited to the extent where people are seeing an opportunity to leave, perhaps to go somewhere else that is benefiting or perhaps to go off on their own? Well, 20 years ago, if the bank was performing as well as it is performing right now, you would have made a lot more money. That's not the case anymore. And the opportunities on the buy side, that kind of money Goldman Sachs just oh, cannot on. throw at its top executives. Okay. And loyalty is just not such a binding I, factor anymore. I, I'm not going to mince words here. Private equity is taking over the Srinatarajan Act. Dr. Curry is worth his weight in gold to some private equity shop, right? Well, you, you've seen a prominent move like that. Remember Tossin Slock, who's now at Apollo? He moved from the sell side to the buy side. We don't know what Jeff Curry is doing. It right. would appear that he is taking some time out, spending some time with family. He has two young kids, so he could potentially be taking some time. He's just 56, so it's hard to say that he's, he's retiring. He's, he's for old. Good. He's ancient. You nailed it this morning. You said that Jeff Curry was tired of waiting. Tired of waiting for you. Yeah, that was you, Tom, and the that was kids. you. That was <laughs> you. Fandom for the king. Finance and Ray Davies' latest move. So, is, 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 at least with Jeff Curry, you know about his uh, part-time job, which is a little bit of commodities research. But he's perhaps more famous for, at least we'd like to think, for helping produce a movie, a documentary on on this journalist trying to reunite the king some forty years after those guys broke up. I love that. And I've got to say that I love that you tried to put the song into Shree's mouth, basically saying you came here singing. Uh, when you look forward, the people you talk to, and you do have a lot of sources, are there more to come? 
Yes, unfortunately, it doesn't look like this is something that's going to stop. It, it, again, the, the, the people exiting Goldman Sachs is the number of people, you want to keep a track on that, but there isn't anything in that quantity that suggests there's a <clears throat> problem. What we want to see is the type of people leaving the building. Shri, very quickly here, it's August, but it doesn't feel like August to me on New York Wall Street. It feels like late October. Bonuses in February, they're doing fiscal planning for next year. McKinsey-like, larger 60,000, baloney. It's out the window. This seems to be a unique August. How unique is this August for the players in Manhattan? It's, it's very important. You've had five very slow months, six very slow months, seven very slow months to start the year. Sorry, I was just trying to figure out where July falls yeah. in the calendar. <laughs> but you. you've had seven slow months to start the year. The question is now when we're seeing a little bit of a pickup, we head into the late summer lull. You're hoping for a pickup <clears> after <throat> Labor Day, but then that giant uh, right. U.S. government shutdown threats start coming into the fray again start of October, and then you're close to the end of the year. So is there enough time to rebound? 10 seconds. David from the Hamptons emails in, goes, when's Shri publishing this morning? What are you publishing this morning? Nothing said. else for now, Tom. <laughs> I gave you my circle for the day. Okay, David, there you go. Shri will be publishing later today, we believe. Shri Natarajan with us, Bloomberg News. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.